Hey lady, it's Dr. Dom here. If you like this show and you want to make your own, let me tell you about the free platform Anchor. It's a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. You can add songs from Spotify and create any type of content that you are looking for. Anchor will distribute it all for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. On this week's episode of Cultivating Her Space. I view therapy as a space where I'm guiding you and walking alongside you on your journey, right? I'm not the expert in your personal experience. Today's episode is sure to provide you with motivation, inspiration, or a fresh perspective. If you have any aha moments or appreciate anything from this episode, please leave us a review to let us know we're on the right track. Also, we release episodes every Friday, so be sure to subscribe on iTunes and visit cultivatingherspace.com to access our exclusive after show and other bonus content from the Patreon tab. Welcome to Cultivating Her Space, a podcast dedicated to uplifting women like you. We're your hosts, Dr. Dominique Broussard, a college professor and psychologist, and Terry Lomax, a techie and motivational speaker. In a world where Black women are often misrepresented and misunderstood, please join us as we initiate authentic conversations on everything from fibroids to fake friends and create a safe space where Black women can just be. Hey lady, it's Terry here from Cultivating Her Space. Are you tired of working hard for your money? Do you want your business to run smoothly when you're out of office? If you want to learn how to automate your business cash flow and increase your impact and influence, join me for my free workshop at brandwithterry.com. Again, that's brandwithterry.com. My name is spelled T-E-R-R-I. Hope to see you there, lady. All right, lady. Today we have a very special episode. We are chatting with our very own um, you know, I like to call you our resident therapist, but I'm not going to call you that today. We are chatting with our very own Dr. Dominique Broussard, and I'm going to go ahead and get us started, lady, with a quote of the day. Our quote is, ideally, therapy is a sacred space where all of your worries and wishes are laid bare. And that quote comes to us by our very own Dr. Dom. So Dom, can you tell us a little bit about what that quote means to you? Yeah, so I just want to acknowledge that this was definitely a change in pace to have you reading the quote of the day. So yeah, so for me, that quote is really about how I view the therapy space. I say ideally because that's exactly what it is. Ideally, your therapy space is a space where you feel safe and comfortable enough to put out there all of your worries, all of your dreams, like all of it, right? You truly feel safe and supported in that space. 
And I, and again, I say ideally because I also recognize that that's not always the case. And that could be the part of the client that could be on the part of the therapist. But what we really want is a space where you as the client feel comfortable enough to really put it all out there to truly just be to be vulnerable because that's where the growth happens is when you're not afraid to say like the ugly stuff that you might not say out loud to whoever but you say it in therapy and then figure out what's a a different way that I can communicate that to that other person I love that you pointed out the ideal because I was thinking like, dang, that sounds so amazing. And I have, you know, luckily had therapy sessions that have felt that way, but I've also had those ones where I'm like, oh, this relationship, this partnership is not a good fit. So when I think about your journey and like where you began, how you began, it makes me think about people that I know. And even sometimes myself where over the years before I went to therapy, I would consider my best friend, like my therapist. I'm like, okay, you're the person that I feel safe with. I tell all my, you know, wishes and worries, you know, I share all my wishes and worries with you or, you know, some of us who have been through a lot in life and we're like, you know what? I want to help people. I want to be a psychologist or a therapist when I get older. When you think about your origin story, what made you want to become a therapist? So honestly, like, you know how when you're like a little kid and everybody's like always asking you, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be? For the longest time, I wanted to be, I would say, I would either tell folks, oh, I want to be a lawyer or I want to be like a fashion designer. That's what I would tell folks. And like, I remember I had this book, this composition book as I'm reading stories or I started writing my own short stories, like I would design outfits for the characters and stuff, or I would design outfits that I wanted my Barbie dolls to have. Clearly that dream did not come to fruition, but I think what made me see like the path of like being a psychologist, I remember in high school, we had this assignment where we had to look up information on our career of choice. And then, and at the same time, there was this TV show, Allie McBeal. And then you also had Law and Order. So you had all these shows on TV where you could see attorneys, you like actually, or, you know, that television version of attorneys, right? And I remember for me watching those shows, the idea of having to be in a courtroom and speak in front of people like terrified me. So not even, I wasn't even upset with the idea or nervous about the idea of kind of that unspoken power that attorneys may have, particularly if you're like, a prosecuting attorney, or like you're in criminal, your criminal law, right? Because that's what you see on TV. You don't see all the other facets of like trademarking or, you know, other things related to like intellectual property or entertainment law or family. Well, no, you do see some family law on TV. But what the image of what I saw on TV of what lawyers do 
I didn't feel comfortable with doing that. Right. Like I was terrified of the idea of like having to get up and speak in front of court. Now, you know, it's interesting now because like I teach and I present at workshops and conferences and things. And so I am speaking in front of crowds, right, doing that thing that I was initially scared of. And so like at that time, so it was going back to high school when we had to do that assignment and I made that decision like, oh, I don't like this idea of having to stand in front of a courtroom, like this fear of public speaking. But I do like helping people and giving advice. Because in my mind, that's what I thought psychologists, that's what they do, is they listen to you and they tell you what you need to do to fix it. And so when I did the research, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, this is something that I could do. And so I, you know, in that research, like I figured out what were like all the steps necessary that it was going to take for me to get that degree or those degrees to become a psychologist. So made that decision in high school and have pursued that since. That is pretty awesome. I think that there's so much value in figuring out what you want to do early on. And high school seems to me pretty early to know what career you want to focus on because you can then invest in yourself, sow into yourself. You know where you're going. Like you said, in high school, you were able to map out, okay, this is where I want to go. This is what I want to do. So that's amazing. Lady, as you're tuning in, I will say, if this is your first time listening, Dr. Dom and I, you know, we're co-hosts here on the podcast, but today we are literally going to the other side of the couch, right? So instead of us being in therapy, we get to chat with the therapist and get the inside scoop. So hopefully the questions that we discussed today are questions that will give you clarity on the experience. Now, one thing I would love to ask you, Dom, is if someone's listening and they think they want to be a psychologist, well, first of all, before we dive into that, can we talk about, is there a difference between a psychologist and a therapist or is it the same? Yes and no. Okay. So (laughs) your, I know it's so complicated, right? So you're your therapist is the person who provides therapy, right? And so, or who you go to to get that mental health support. Mm-hmm. So your therapist can be a psychologist. They could be a psychiatrist, a licensed professional counselor, a licensed marriage and family therapist, or a licensed clinical social worker. And forgive me, folks, mental health, other mental health professionals, if I forgot anyone, but those are the major types of therapists out there related to mental health. Your psychologist is someone who has a doctorate in psychology and they can provide therapy, but they don't have to provide therapy, right? So there are psychologists who are in academia. There are psychologists who are in other settings doing research or like we have industrial organizational psychologists. And those are the psychologists that like work with human resources departments and things like that, like helping with organizational effectiveness. Okay. So yes and no is like the legit answer. And so it sounds like there are levels to it. You could really take the field and kind of go into different directions. Yeah. So, okay, that's good to know. Cause I think, I feel like I use them interchangeably, but if there is someone that is listening and they're like, oh, 
I think I might be good at this, you know, career path. It's something that I think I'm leaning toward. How do you know if you would make a good psychologist or let me say therapist, because that's what we're talking about today. And I want to make sure we make that distinction. Like, how do you know you would be a good therapist? You know, that's an excellent question that I don't think you know until you know, right? And I know that's not like a real answer, but I can think of classmates who started off on the, in graduate school and got the degree and started doing the work and decided that it was not for them, right? And so for me, when I think about what makes a good therapist or how do you know, no, cause those are two different questions. How do you know that you can be a therapist? It's about your capacity to listen and hold other people's stuff. One of the common misconceptions is that a therapist is someone who's there to give you advice, who's there to tell you what to do. Now, I will say that depending on your therapist's style, that there may be moments when, yes, they are telling you what to do, right? They may be being pretty directive, but that's not their main purpose. A coach is someone who's going to be definitely there to like kind of give you direct tips and things like you need to do X, Y, and Z. The therapist, again, while they may give you some of that guidance, that's not their only purpose. To me, the therapist, their main purpose is to listen and help guide you on your journey. Now, what I encourage folks to also do is to think about, is to ask their therapist these questions. I view therapy as a space where I'm guiding you and walking alongside you on your journey, right? I'm not the expert in your personal experience. Okay, wow. That was really interesting. And the thing that really stood out to me was the part about listening, because I think a lot of times, like you said, there is a misconception. People are like, oh, I will be a great great therapist. I give good advice. And it's like, no, it's not about giving advice. It's about listening. And I feel like that's a skill that many people lack. You know, they think they might be good at it, but to really just hold space and listen and not make the conversation about yourself or not have your unconscious bias impacting the conversation. To me, it sounds like therapists are definitely superheroes and you have to be a special kind of person to be a therapist is what I'm gathering. And so I want to dive into the listening phase and talk a bit about, you know, when you, we're going to get into the steps to become a, a therapist or psychologist, but when it comes to listening, like how do you develop that skill? Because I feel like whether you're a therapist or not, that is a valuable skill that will allow you to enhance your relationships, connect with people on a deeper level, especially when you're like, when you have kids engaging your teens or your, you know, your kids or even your partner. So how do you develop the listening skills? Because people just be ready to talk, talk, talk these days. (laughs) So when you're in the, as a therapist, part of that listening is really being still and being present so that 
you're attending to not only what that person is saying in the present moment, but also kind of thinking 5, 10, 15, 20 steps ahead of that person as well to kind of think about, okay, well, what are the potential outcomes from what they're sharing right now? And what are those outcomes based on what I know from previous therapy experience? What I, and when I say ther- previous therapy experience, like work with other clients, maybe my own experiences, and also, in some instances, what the research shows. Now, I do want to be clear that when we think about Black women and we talk about Black women, we know that there's a paucity in the literature around, and when I say paucity in the literature, what I mean is in the research around the mental health needs of black folks. That's a whole nother conversation about like the systemic issues, institutional issues on why that research is not being put out there like it needs to be. But I say all that to say that when you're listening, you're doing a lot of mental juggling, right? So you are focusing on, again, what's being said in the present moment, but also kind of thinking 5, 10, 15, 20 steps ahead. And that takes practice. So, you know, I when I reflect back on some of my very first clients, I think about the level of expertise that I have now compared to what I had when I first started out and how I showed up. Like there were skills that I had to like work on, right? And that's not to be an indictment on new therapists, right? Therapists in training. Because I also know that sometimes there's a bias where Folks say, well, I don't want a a new therapist because they don't have enough experience. I get that. But what I would also offer to counter that is that usually when you are working with a therapist in training, you are getting the support of not just that therapist who's in the room with you, but also a team of people. So to me, that's like gold because you're getting like at least two therapists for the price of one. Amazing. So it sounds like practice makes perfect or, you know, a similar, I know sometimes we shy away from that statement because of the word perfect, but it sounds like practice serves you well when it comes to becoming a good listener and just being in the field for a longer period of time allows you to work on that craft. One thing that came up for me as you were sharing is like, how is a therapist, I guess in the beginning, I'm assuming that you have some type of shadowing experience where folks are providing feedback, but once you're an established professional, how are you evaluated and how do you get better at what you do so that you can still continue to grow and evolve? Because I was just thinking like, I know sometimes when you get into a field and you're there for a while, you might just do things a certain way, but I'm sure that your field is always evolving. So how can therapists make sure that they are like sharpening those skills, I guess? So there's a couple of ways, right? So the major way, in order to maintain your license, you have to earn a number of what they call continuing education credits every year. And so every state is different. 
depending like in terms of like how many continuing education credits you have to have and what topics you have to cover. But what I will say is that that is what helps keep you sharp. That is what helps keep keep you in the know of what is happening, right? The other thing is consultation groups. So, and the, I say consultation groups, particularly if you're in a solo practice. So meaning that it's just you, is nobody else. But if you're in like a group practice or community mental health agency or at a hospital, like, or a university counseling center, like, so if you're in a space where it's a group of folks, then you have constant access to other folks who you can seek guidance from. And they're going to seek guidance from you. It's a reciprocal relationship. But then also, too, when you're in those settings. So, like, for instance, I am working in a university counseling center. And so we have constant access to learning opportunities so that you are constantly staying sharp as long as you're choosing to engage in it. You're going to be staying sharp. That's a good point there. As long as you're choosing to engage in it and you're not just like, okay, I got my degree. I'm just going to coast. Okay. That's super helpful. And it's really interesting to know that there are those resources at your disposal. As far as one thing that came up as you were sharing before was like, I know I have a lot of personal stuff going on in my life. It seems like always, I think that's just the nature of life. Like we just got, people got shit going on. Now as a therapist, when you're trying to hold space for someone when you're trying to be present with them, but you have your own like life drama going on, like what are some of the best ways to manage that so that you can show up and be present for someone when you have your own stuff going on? The first is to have your own therapist. Yes. I, I cannot stress enough how helpful it has been for me to have my own therapist. And, you know, one thing that Elisa Bokeen said in one of our previous episodes in her most recent appearance, she pointed out that oftentimes as therapists, in terms of our own evolution and development, we are usually not that far ahead of our clients. But because we're therapists, we have, we're equipped with access to more tools, right? And we have access to our own therapist. And so for me, having my own therapist has been incredibly helpful, particularly when there's been like maybe some challenging times in my life. The other thing too is that we are legally and ethically bound by recognizing when our personal life is interfering with our ability to perform and to show up for clients. And when that becomes a problem, then we take a pause. We take a step back from therapy, from our role as a therapist. And we do the work to get ourselves back to a space where we can fully show up for our clients. That makes me so happy to hear, Don, because I feel like 
I don't know, maybe it's just my perspective, but I feel like back in the day, I'm going to say back in the day, it seems like professionals were sort of put on pedestals, like before social media, before we could really get an inside scoop on people's lives. Like you just see someone you're like, oh, this person is a doctor. So I make these assumptions about them in their life. But with social media sort of breaking down those barriers and giving us an inside scoop on certain aspects of people, really celebrities and those types of professionals that are in the public eye, you see like, oh, they're human too. And so the fact that, you know, as a therapist, you're saying you have your own therapist, I think that is so incredible. And I remember one one of my therapists, when she had mentioned her own therapy, she's like, yeah, I go to therapy too. And I was like, oh, damn, that's so dope. You know, I think that it's endearing, you know, and it makes you feel like, okay, my therapist is doing their work too. And they're helping me out. It, it really makes it feel like a communal effort. Like no one's better than one, you know, than the other person. You might be a right. few steps ahead with more tools and we're just all helping each other like that. I think that's so beautiful. So I love, love, love that you shared that. Okay. So I want to get into some of the juicy stuff. If you can't share anything, cause this is just me being nosy. If you can't share, <laughs> just let us know Dom. But okay. maybe I watch too much TV, but I'm thinking if, and not you, but if you have heard of stories of a therapist that has had to like set a boundary with the client or has had a client that's like, I, I was watching this show recently and like the, the therapist was being stalked by a client. If, if a therapist has a situation like that, what do they do? <laughs> it, so what I will say is that it depends on your state and what the licensing boards or the laws around how to proceed. Okay. I know, you know, mm-hmm. in most states, If you are being threatened by a client, then you have the right to say, we're terminating. Like, I am no longer going to be your therapist. Like, you, at that point, you know, part of what we are expected to do is to protect the client, but all, and protect. So we protect the client. We protect the public. We protect the profession of mental health or psychology, and then we protect ourselves. So it's what we call like the four P's, right? So patient, public, profession, psychologist. And so for me, you know, like there's a lot of, depend, again, depending on your state, there are laws that protect you as a psychologist or therapist if you are being threatened in any way by a client you have the right to protect yourself and to say nope we you are no longer at this point you are no longer my client and then you can let authorities know what's happening that was actually going to be my next question is like, if you are ever in a situation and you have a client and you're like, yo, this person's kind of creepy. They're just like, you just get an uneasy feeling in sessions, depending on your state. It sounds like you are able to set that boundary and let them know that you can no longer work with them. That's good. Yeah. And, and, you know, but I do want to be clear that it's not just, okay, this person is being creepy because okay. so as a therapist, if I have a client who's sitting in front of me and mm-hmm. I'm getting you know, to use like layman's terms, you know, getting creeper vibes from them. Yeah. Then I can't just on that basis alone say, I'm not going to work with this person anymore. Like there has to be like a real credible threat 
to myself gotcha. or someone else for me to okay. draw that boundary, right? But as a therapist, if I'm getting those vibes, then I believe that the onus is on me to mm-hmm. make a determination on how I'm going to proceed. Am I going to call it out? You know, and and when I say call it out from how I operate is that it's going to be done in a loving way, right? So a compassionate mm-hmm. way of saying, of kind of reflecting back to that person, like, here's how I'm feeling right now in this space with you. And I wonder if other people in your world may also feel the same way. Gotcha. So my perspective, you know, and I, I keep emphasizing me and my because not all therapists operate the same. But mm-hmm. my perspective is that unless I am truly like there's credible evidence there of my safety being threatened. Mm-hmm. I, and even then, I still want to respond compassionately. Yep. That makes sense. That's that's good to know too. And what about when you think about your favorite part of being a therapist? What would that be for you? The privilege of being allowed into people's journeys, right? So like, you know, like I think about for myself going to therapy, how beautiful and helpful that is for my own personal growth and development. And I recognize just because of my own experience, what that takes to show up in the therapy space. And like I said, to lay bare your, all of your worries and your wishes. And so for me, I just feel like so incredibly honored when people say, all right, yeah, I, you know, I want you as my therapist. Like it just feels like I recognize like the sacredness of that. That sounds so amazing. And I'm with you. It definitely can be, it can definitely take a lot for some people to get started on that journey. I know it took me a long time and it's such a beautiful space to have. And I'd love to know, I can only imagine like what experiences people share with you, what intimate details. I'm sure that in some cases, you are the only person that people have shared certain things in their life with ever, yes. which like, as you said, talk about sacred. I mean, a privilege and so sacred for, for folks. Is it okay, in your opinion, as a therapist to become emotional in a session if a client is feeling emotional? Because I feel like I've had differing experiences with therapists. I've had some therapists that are like, stone cold. Like you can tell that, they're, I mean, they're there, but they're like stone cold. And it's like, okay, I can't, I don't want to be emotional. And I've had some that have been a bit more emotional. Like we're human. Like this is okay. What is your personal philosophy on that? Because I know it can be tricky. It can. And so for me, it's about, it's nuance. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to be the same with every client. And so for me, it truly is about the relationship that I have with that individual client. And the situation that they're bringing up that's bringing out my emotions, right? So, you know, when I talk about like that mental juggling, that as I'm present in the moment, listening to what they're sharing, I'm also processing, like when emotions come up for me, 
I'm simultaneously processing why is that emotion coming up for me? Mm. Is it my sense of empathy for the client? Like, am I empathizing so much with the client that it's bringing out those emotions? Or is it my own stuff? Like, is it triggering my own stuff, right? And in that case, that's just another signal for me of like, oh, maybe I need to process this in therapy, in my own therapy, Mm -hmm. because if it's coming up in this way, in such an intense way, maybe there's something there that I didn't realize was there and I need to process, right? But also too, being mindful, going back to like my relationship with my client, being aware of what that emotion is that's coming up. Mm-hmm. So like I think about clients that they've had some injustice happen and, you know, they're sharing and I find myself getting angry. And so in those moments, I may say I might you might not be able to visibly see the anger. But I may reflect back to them like. You know, what you're sharing, I can't imagine what you might be going through. But for me right now, like, I'm becoming really angry for you as I'm hearing this. And so I wonder what emotions are really coming up for you as you reflect on this experience. Oh, that's beautiful, Dom. What I noticed about what you just said is, one, you didn't project and say, damn, Like, (laughs) I bet you're angry or you seem angry because it came up for you. But then also the transparency of a therapist to say, like, I just love the fact that it's like, I'm human. I felt for you and I became angry with you sharing this. How do you feel? Like putting it on them. I think that is beautiful. And it sounds like the people that work with you, I mean, I'm sure just knowing you, like, they're just lucky to be able to be in your presence and have that experience. But that I think that is incredible because I can only imagine other ways that a therapist could process that, but to be so in tune with yourself that that's how it's reflected when it comes up. I think that is so beautiful. Let me be clear. And thank you. I do receive that. <laughs> I receive that. Yeah. <laughs> I, but I also want to be clear that that takes work. For sure. That not every therapist is going to be in that same space. But mm-hmm. on my part, that has taken work over the years and my own therapy to make mm-hmm. sure that I'm able to show up in this way. Could have been something that you were not doing on day one. So it, like, it, it's a journey and it takes time to get to mature and get to that level. Which I think is why you go through training, right? That's why it's yeah. called training because you're learning, mm-hmm. right? Like I can remember... One of my first clients was a, like someone who I remember in session, like she mm-hmm. would like make me angry. Really? Like, like intentionally? I, or? Not it. I don't. Not yes. Yes. Okay. Intentionally. Okay. Okay. And I just remember sitting with that and just being like, one, like just in wonderment of, why is this client like intentionally making me angry? And why mm-hmm. am I letting that happen? And then I remember share, like, you know, like we're in our group setting, you know, they're all therapists and we're, we're mm-hmm. sharing and I'm talking about this particular client 
And then other folks are chiming in. And then I find myself defending her. Defending the client. Yeah. And I'm like, it gave me pause because I'm like, wait, my classmates and fellow therapists are trying to show up for me and support me and this client who's making me angry. And here I am not taking their support. I'm defending her. And so then that made me kind of pause and reflect and kind of get curious around, wait, why am I now defending her? Like, Mm -hmm. what's really coming up for me? And what is this really saying about her therapy process? Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, I had a supervisor at the time who was helping me think this through. And the conclusion that we came to is that that was her way of protecting herself, right? Mm -hmm. That she was so used to being hurt that to protect herself from being hurt, she would intentionally push people's buttons because that way she felt like she had control. So if I know that I'm intentionally pushing you away, when you walk away, it's not going to hurt because I had control over you walking away. Mm-hmm. And so when I stepped back and thought about that, you know, I think having that opportunity to process with other therapists and then having my supervisor also there to help me really think things through, it allowed me to go back into that space with that particular client and again, just kind of talk to her about how I was experiencing her, but also my interpretation of how I was experiencing her. And then once I was able to do that, that changed the dynamic in our therapy relationship. And so for me, what that the lesson that that taught me early on is that there's always information in how the clients show up. Mm-hmm. And that also I have to, as the therapist, I am also an instrument in that space. That how I'm showing up may, can provide me with information as well to enhance that therapy relationship. That is so intriguing. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm just, I was sitting there like thinking about being in a situation like that where, okay, this person that came to therapy they, and I'm the therapist, they, they try to fuck with me. What is going on here? Yes. Like, that's what I got. And I was just like, whoa, like, hey, dang, that's interesting. But thank you for sharing that. I'm happy to hear that it did come out to, like you all found a positive outcome with you sort of leading the way. I want to ask you one more question before we dive into the actual steps involved mm-hmm. to become a psychologist. Have you ever had a situation where like someone comes to therapy, but they're literally just not saying anything and you're like, you got like full teeth? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's, that's, what that's are not, some of the, that's, that's not foreign. <laughs> that's not foreign to me at all. <laughs> I can only imagine, especially with this being such an, a vulnerable process for folks. I guess, what are your like top two, I don't know, strategies on how to get someone to open up when you're in that space? Silence. Mm. So one of the things that they teach us in therapy is how to, or in graduate school, is how to be okay with silence. Now that is one, I will say that is one skill that I had to practice. Oh, I bet. Is 
sitting in that silence. Yeah, not because when you right, and so like I think about how now it's so you know as we're recording this, we're still in Zoomlandia, and (laughs) I think about sometimes how when I'm in work meetings and it's just a bunch of therapists and there's silence and how it's always fascinating to me to see who moves first to break the silence. Mm -hmm. But I think that that's something that we're all kind of thinking too, because we're all used to it. Yeah. Like we we're trained to get comfortable in that silence. Because what can happen is that that gives the client time to like kind of reflect on what it is they want to say next or what we just got through talking about. And, and then also selfishly, you know, for the therapist, that also gives the therapist a chance to kind of process where do we want to go next? Like taking, like mm-hmm. gives a therapist a moment to take a breath. I, I'm trying to think of the longest silence that I've held with a client. And I can't remember, but it's been a few, it's been like, it was minutes. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, you know, I minutes. think That's about. Minutes, time. I mean, you say mm-hmm. one minute, lady, put your timer on. If you, Dom, even one minute is a long time to be silent and like with someone in a session. That's a mm-hmm. long time in and of itself. And so, you know, what I usually do is I might, I'll look away. Mm-hmm. Like, cause I could, I know that if I, like, if we're having some, a silent pause and I'm looking at the client, directly at the client, then to me that's, and sometimes that kind of feels like a power play mm. of if I'm just sitting there staring, it's like, okay, so you going to say something like, say something like I want you to say something right exactly okay and if you heard the slight inflection in my tone that's where that power play kind of comes in and Mm -hmm. so I you know I might occasionally glance back at the client to kind of get a quick read of where they are like their body language Mm -hmm. but I generally you know, and I and, and I say this, I'm thinking about like when we're in person, like looking away. Mm-hmm. But even in Zoom, like and actually in Zoom, I haven't. I'm not necessarily recalling that being a common occurrence in Zoom, mm-hmm. like doing therapy, like the teletherapy. But yeah. it's it's common with in the work meeting environment. Yeah, that's so interesting. And as far as, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about your experience. We've talked about, you know, some of the different situations that you've been in and also just some of the, I want to say, pro tips that you've gleaned in your journey of being a therapist. Can we talk a bit about the steps involved in becoming a, should we say therapist or psychologist? Because I'm thinking there might be a lady listening who's like, oh, I'm intrigued. I want to get into this field. So... So we can do both, right? So okay, cool. what I can so what I can say is that so my personal trajectory was that I got a bachelor's degree in psychology and then I got a master's degree in community counseling and then a doctorate in counseling psychology. 
and my doctorate is a PhD. Now there's also a PsyD. And, and so you could go that route or you could also go the route of clinical psychology. Either way, you're getting a doctorate, right? If you want to be a psychologist, you're getting a doctorate. Back in the day, because and I don't know how much this still this happens now, because it's been a while since I've looked into it. But I know back in the day there were doctorate programs that were EDD, so doctorates of education. Mm-hmm. But again, I haven't done the research in that to know the latest programs that are still open that are offering that. Most programs that I'm aware of are either offering a PsyD or a PhD. So that means you have a doctorate. For therapists, other mental health professionals, if they are a master's level clinician, then that means that they have a bachelor's, preferably in psychology or sociology or something along those lines, but it's not a mandate, right? So like I know, like I had classmates in my master's program who had, I think somebody had a bachelor's degree in English. I want to say somebody had a degree, their bachelor's was in biology, but they took the necessary psychology courses to prepare them for graduate school. And You know, one thing I will say to folks, particularly students who are in undergrad right now, that your undergrad experience is not the same thing as your graduate experience. And I would say that that is for no no matter what your profession or degree is, that in undergrad, like you're taking a lot of different courses that aren't necessarily directly related to your field of study, right? However, I would say that they enhance what you're studying. So I think about, like, I went to a liberal arts college, and the courses that I took in undergrad, you know, it was also a Jesuit school. So I had to take religion classes and extra philosophy classes. And so the things that these courses that I took, while they are not directly related to psychology, they helped shape my way of thinking, right? And provided me with other way, other perspectives. So after you get the bachelor's degree, like depending on which field you want to go into, that makes the determination of whether or not you get a master's and then you keep going for a doctorate or if you're okay with what in academia we call a terminal master's degree. So you can get Mm -hmm. your master's degree and then take your necessary, necessary steps towards licensure. But that depends. So on what you're trying to pursue. So if we were to kind of break it down into chunks after, let's say after high school, you went to college and got your bachelor's, that was four years. Yep. So when you get the doctor, you're kind of getting a master's on the way or no? Depends on your program. So you can, the route that I took, I got my master's, I had a terminal master's degree. So I have classmates who didn't go on for their doctorate and they are licensed clinicians now with their master's degree. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. Two years. 
Yeah, that that was two years. Yeah. Okay. And then, but I went on for my doctorate and the program that I was in required a master's degree first. Okay. There are some programs that you can get into right out of undergrad and earn your master's along the way. So to me, my best recommendation is to really just do the research yep. and be thorough in that research to kind of understand what it is that you want to do mm-hmm. and knowing your situation. Right. So like I know that there are some schools where you can pursue your graduate degree part time. So you can be working a full time job and then take your classes on the side. Mm -hmm. The programs that I went to didn't allow for that. They weren't created for that. Like the expectation was that you were going to be a full time student. Exactly. Okay, that makes sense. So it sounds like the gears of schooling will differ based on the program, but also which sort of track you take. For you, so you did your four year, you did your four year batch. I'm just trying to cal- I'm calculating how many years of school after high school ten. for you. Ten. Okay, so after high mm-hmm. school, you did four bachelors. You did two for the for masters. masters, and then four more for the doctor. Okay, mm-hmm. so ten years. Okay, well, and that's at a minimum. Some people take longer. Oh, wow. But you went straight through. Did you take any breaks? Yeah. Nope. No break. Wow. That's amazing. Well, Dom, this was definitely super fun. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I want to ask about in case someone is thinking about this and they want to know about salary. Is there a place they can go? Because I'm sure it'll vary based on your role and the state. Is there like a resource or something that we can maybe add in the show notes where they can kind of get an estimate or a range on like, okay, if I do. If I go this route, you know, what will my salary be and things of that nature? Yeah. So I will give them the resource that I use back in the day, like when to bring this full circle. So when we were talking about like, how did I make that decision? The research that I did, I now back in the day when I was in high school, it wasn't the Internet wasn't the thing that it is today. So we had to actually go to the library and go through the stats. I used this at the time. It was a book called the Occupational Outlook Handbook. And now it's all online. You can easily access it. You type in the career that you're considering, and then they break it down for you. They provide you with information on what kind of salary to expect, what education requirements you might need. You can even look like now because it's on online, it's interactive in terms of like, you can look and get information by state. So, you know, I think it's really, it's a robust amount of information that they have on that website now. All right, lady, you heard it here from Dr. Don. That is super, super valuable. And thank you so much for sharing your journey with us, Don. If we have any listening ladies that want to sign up to vet you so that you can become their therapist or they're like, you know what? You sold me on this interview, Dr. Dom. Let me, let me go ahead and start working with you. How can they find you and start the process? So if you reside in the state of California, you can check out my website at drdominiquebroussard.com. So that's D-R-D-O-M-I-N-I-Q-U-E B-R-O-U-S-S-A-R-D dot com. 
And we'll also add that link in the show notes as well, ladies. So you can just click on that link and get you some Dr. Dom, right? Sit on the couch and have a conversation. Again, Dr. Dom, thank you so much for sharing with us. This was so insightful. And ladies, we're going to... Yay! <laughs> it's so funny when we interview each other. It's always like, yeah, this feels so weird. But this was so this was so cool. I really enjoyed it. And lady, we're gonna hop on over to Patreon to dig into the after show. So make sure you visit our website, herspacepodcast.com. Click on that link in the top that says Patreon and join us for the after show. Hey lady, it's Dr. Dom here from the Cultivating Her Space Podcast. Do you have a burning question you're dying to get feedback on? Do you want an unbiased perspective on a situation you're facing? If so, visit cultivatingherspace.com and click Ask Dr. Dom under the Start Here option. Every Tuesday, I'll choose a few questions and answer them at random. Thanks for joining us today. Please note that our show may contain conversations about self-help advice, self-empowerment, and mental health, but is by no means meant to be a substitute for an ongoing formal relationship with a trained mental health provider. If you or someone you know is in need of mental health care, please visit the Therapy for Black Girls directory, Psychology Today, or contact your insurance provider. If you liked what you heard and want to keep the conversation going, visit our website, cultivatingherspace.com, and be sure to click the Patreon tab to get access to video content, bonuses, and our weekly after show. And before we meet again, repeat after me. I am doing the best I can with the understanding, knowledge, and awareness I have at this moment.